The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. One Galis Duncan and one Claire Fraser, both standing before the church's court for the crime of witchcraft, did inflict pain, suffering and death upon the citizens of Cranesmuir by their practice of the unholy arts. Make way, make way, please. I demand to be led into the proceedings. And you are, sir? My name is Edward Gowan, Your Honor, lawyer, former writer to the Signet, Edinburgh. Let him pass. And what brings you here, sir? Your Honor, as we're all aware, the Witchcraft Act of 1563 was repealed by the House of Lords in 1735. I therefore submit that this entire trial is illegal. <laughs> is an ad hoc proceeding under the administration of the church. Oh, well, I see that we have dispensed with British law, which pleases me greatly, but uh, I am certain that you will not wish to dispense with our proud Scottish legal tradition. We are still in Scotland. Though, no? no one's disputing that, Mr. Gowan. Yes, well, here in Scotland, uh, an accused witch is entitled to a defence lawyer at trial. A, a benefit... A benefit sadly not offered to those in merry old England. <laughs> As I therefore would like to offer my services in support of the accused. Oh, very well. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, April 30th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. It's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today, Be Afraid, Be Very, Very Afraid, because I plan to take a journey into fear itself during the second half of our program today. And what we may learn about fear will either scare us or offer us great relief from the myriad of fears that we all seem to share. Before we go on to the first part of our program, just to remind you, write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Subscribe to us to Just Right on iTunes. Did I get that right, Robert? That sounds pretty good, Bob. Getting pretty good, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, so what I'm going to do is lead off the uh, hour with... um Something from the Supreme Court that just came down this week, um, and I, I don't usually agree with the uh, Canada Supreme Court. As a matter of fact, I, I, I found out that I, I would probably disagree with most everything they do since uh, one of the very first decisions back in the 80s, I believe, just after the ratification of the Bill of uh, Rights and the uh, repatriation of our Constitution. They decided that the RIDE program, Reduce Impaired Driving Everywhere, was justifiable. Even though, and they said this, it violates your rights. That was my first wake-up call to Section 1 of the Constitution, uh, or the Bill of Rights, uh, which uh, basically says you have all these rights until we, unless we say you don't. But on April 15th, a decision had me taking their side, and the case was the Quebec Secular Movement and Alain Simoneau versus the city of Saguenay and Jean Tremblay. To summarize the complaint, I'll quote from the Supreme Court's decision. Quote, Simoneau regularly attended the public meetings of the Municipal Council of the City of Saguenay. At the start of each meeting, the mayor would recite a prayer after making the sign of the cross while saying, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The prayer also ended with the sign of the cross in the same words. Other councillors and city officials would cross themselves at the beginning and end of the prayer as well. 
In one of the council chambers, there was a sacred heart statue fitted with a red electric votive light. In another, there was a crucifix hanging on the wall. S. Uh, Simino, who considered himself an atheist, felt uncomfortable with this display, which he considered religious, and asked the mayor to stop the practice. Unquote. Now, Simino took his objection, when the mayor refused, uh, to the Quebec Human Rights Tribunal, who decided in his favor. But the city of Saguenay won on appeal to the Quebec Court of Appeal. Now, Simoneau went to the Supreme Court for a final decision, which I'll get into the details a little later. First, this little bit of a preamble about tradition in and, and Canada and the United States and religion and church. We live in a society where three-quarters of the population profess some form of religious affiliation, and a f- almost a full quarter claim no religion or religious affiliation at all. In fact, the rise of atheism and the non-religious in Canada has been quite rapid over the past 20 years when, according to the 1991 census, they made up only 12.6% of the population, while in the 2011 census, the last one, that number almost doubled to 23.9%. But as a matter of principle, when it comes to a government overtly favoring one particular religion over all others, or favoring a supernatural belief over non-belief, members should not, um, members or numbers should not be a consideration. In other words, this is not a numbers game. It's a matter of principle. Now, historically, Canada, while comprised primarily of Christians at the time of its founding, no doubt about that, is a secular nation in all matters of governance. This is as it should be, of course, while our sovereign is the queen who, while in England, is the defender of the faith, in Canada, she has no such title. The Church of England is not the official church in Canada. Canada has no official religion, and its governments have historically and traditionally been neutral in matters of spirituality. There are still remnants of Christian, primarily Catholic, belief in our history, such as the naming of cities after saints, or reference to God in the preamble to our Bill of Rights. And since 1877, a prayer has been said prior to the um, every sitting in the House and Commons in Ottawa, just before the doors are opened to admit the public. That's important, by the way. It's, it's, it's a prayer w- with the doors closed to the public. It's only for the members. Now, in the provinces, Catholics have been given preference in matters of education, with many provinces, including this one, Ontario, allowing Catholics their own publicly funded education system, whether we agree with it or not. Other than these and other minor nods to the primarily Christian heritage of Canada's peoples, this country's governments have traditionally been neutral in matters of faith or lack thereof. In respect to the separation of church and state, our history is not unlike our neighbor to the south who have seized on that concept more explicitly and overtly. While that particular phrase of the separation of church and state does not appear in the U.S. Constitution, it has its roots in Thomas Jefferson as far back as 1802. And before that, the secular identity of the United States was clearly set out in 1797 when the United States Senate ratified a treaty with Tripoli that stated, quote, as the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, unquote. Several of the Founding Fathers have clearly stated their belief in the neutrality of government in all things religious. Now, the Founding Fathers, of course, of the United States, who I said before have taken this rather fervently in the hand and uh, dealt with it very explicitly. This is from John Adams in a defense of the Constitution of the Government of the United States of America in 1787-1788. Quote, although the detail of the formation of the American governments is at present little known or regarded either in Europe or America. It may hereafter become an object of curiosity. It will never be pretended that any persons employed in that service had interviews with the gods or were in any degree under the influence of heaven, more than those at work upon ships or houses, or laboring in the merchandise or agriculture. It will forever be acknowledged that these governments were contrived merely by the use of reason and the senses. Here's from Thomas Jefferson in a letter to Horatio Spofford in 1814. Quote, In every country and in every age, the priest has been hostile to liberty. 
he is always in alliance with the despot, abetting his abuses in return for protection to his own. It is error alone that needs the support of government. Truth can stand by itself. Uh, Founding Father Thomas Jefferson again in a letter to Dr. Thomas Cooper in February 12, 1814, quote, Christianity neither is nor ever was a part of the common law. And of course, with common law, he's talking about British common law, which uh, the United States and Canada have adopted in varying degrees. And finally, from Founding Father James Madison in 1819, quote, The civil government functions with complete success by the total separation of the church from the state. Now, Founding Fathers George Washington, Charles Pinckney, Roger Sherman, Isaac Bacchus, Bacchus, Thomas Paine, Oliver Walcott, um, Albert Jerry, Rufus King, Edmund Randolph, and many others professed their concern over the encroachment of government and civil matters by religion and the clergy. Roger Williams, the theologian who established the first Baptist church in America, also founded the state of Rhode Island on the principle of state neutrality in the matters of faith. Now here's a man of the cloth. He actually established a church, but he also established a uh, state on the matters of neutrality in faith. Such neutrality was confirmed, by the way, by King Charles II of England. So there's our history as well. You know, it's interesting because, as you know, I've done a lot of interviews and been a guest on a show where there were many people of different faiths Mm -hmm. speaking. And my experience has been, almost without exception, that no matter what the faith, at least of the people I was exposed to, they all believed in a secular government. Yes. No matter how strong their faiths were. Well, you know, it's interesting. And so it's not, a, it's not an atheist versus a believer no. thing at all. In nope. fact, it's more of a believer versus a believer thing. Most of the religious people I know, uh, especially on the conservative side of the coin, uh, as a matter of fact, all of the religious people I know are yeah. more or less on the conservative side of the coin, um, want separation of church and state. They don't, because they see themselves as being protected by that. Because there's so many different factions of different religions, mm-hmm. so many different um, sects uh, that are warring with each other, and if ever one of them gained control... But, but you know what's interesting? The, the, the fathers of, of Confederation and of the United States and whoever supported the secular government, they did so at a time when their religion was the majority. Yes. Right? That's yeah. impressive. That means they did it on principle. They did it on not, well, you know, because we're the majority, why not just go with it, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> while they were sort of in the majority uh, as as to Christianity, they yeah. were not in the majority as to uh, a particular brand of uh, Christianity. Well, as a matter of fact, not. Roger Williams um, found himself persecuted um, in the Mayflower Flower colony and had to leave that where he fa- set up the state of Rhode Island, um, established under the principle of neutrality and faith. So it was because of religious persecution for some of these people that um, mm-hmm. it was very uh, very personal to them that they knew that the government should not have in any way a say in faith, whether for it or against it. And that's very important. Um, we all know what a, a government with, uh, who has a, an establishment of atheism can be like. I mean, you look at the Soviet Union or any communist nation where uh, religion may or may not be outlawed. Just as bad, if you ask me, as the church getting involved in government. I agree. Now, traditionally, therefore, after all that uh, preamble, both Canada and the United States have enjoyed a clear separation of church and state with all governments within their borders practicing neutrality. Now, we're going to have a little break here, and when we come back, I'm going to talk about the actual case that went down at the uh, Supreme Court of Canada and the city of Saguenay versus... um, the Quebec Secular Movement and Alain Simoneau. Back after this. You're not facing the camera, Mr. Wordsworth. You're treating your audience. They want to see how you die. Please, Mr. Wordsworth, turn around. Face the camera. That's right. And don't stifle your emotions. If you feel like crying, go ahead and cry. Or if you want to plead, plead by all means. Some high state official might take pity on you. Yes, that would please you, wouldn't it? A little abject hand-wringing, chest-pounding, falling down on my hands and knees. Shoot yourself, Mr. Wordsworth. Unfortunately, I don't have time to be entertained by them when they do come. I have another appointment this evening. You have plenty of time. You're not going anywhere. How's that? I'm afraid I haven't been very fair with you. I invited you here for a very special reason. Would you like to know the method that I've chosen for my liquidation? Well, in a very few moments, here in this room, a bomb is going off. 
Very thoughtful, Mr. Wordsworth. Relatively quick and painless death. Yes, isn't it? However, knowing that you're going to be blown to smithereens in a few moments isn't the happiest thought in the world, is it? Is it? That depends on the individual, Mr. Wordsworth. Indeed it does. The idiocy is this, Mr. Wordsworth. You've locked the door. Oh, yes, yes, I've locked the door. Now, question. How does a man react to the knowledge that he's going to be blown to bits within a half an hour? Answer, that depends on the individual. So for myself, I'm going to sit down and read my Bible. It's been hidden here for over 20 years. It's a crime punishable by death. But still, it's the only possession that I have that has any value at all to me. So I'm going to just sit down and read it. Until the moment of my death. How will you spend your last moments, Chancellor? Let me out of here, someone. Guards, someone, anyone. You're cheating the audience. You're not facing the cameras. Face the cameras. Step into the light. Let the whole country see the strength of the state, the resilience of the state, the courage of the state. Let the whole country see the way a valiant man of steel faces his death. You have a nirvana coming up, too. Why don't you just sit down? We'll have a little chat. Just you and me and the great equalizer. As death is a great equalizer. That suddenly, in the eyes of God, there is precious little to distinguish us. Anyone who follows you on Twitter and you have a huge following, they'll know that you are a pathological atheist mm. and therefore the thought of death is very final for you. For me, yeah. as a good Irish Catholic boy, it's the start of something new and glorious. For you, that's it. And for me, it's the end of something glorious. So I have to pack it all in. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not depressed about it. I, I don't want to die any more than anyone else. And I think there's this strange myth that Atheists have nothing to live for. It's the opposite. We have nothing to die for. You have we more ha to live for. We because have everything to live for. Yes. Yeah. I would imagine you have a more focused attention to life because you think it ends when you die. I think it's precious. I think it's beautiful. I think the world is amazing. I love people, animals, art, every hobby. I can't, I can't believe my luck that I'm alive for these 70 or 80 years. <laughs> what are the, you said the things you like. What are the, the, the things that really annoy you? Um, only two things really, really make my blood boil, I suppose. I suppose in general, as I get older, injustice. Injustice quietly makes my blood boil. Either, either personal, social, political. I suppose the two, two main categories are our religious intolerance, this, this arrogance that, that you think, you know, arguing over whose God is right sort of gets me down a little bit, you know. And I've got, I've got no problem with spirituality. I really haven't. Uh, you know, that's another myth. And I always try and make the difference clear between spirituality and religion. Mm. One is a very personal feeling, a journey, a hope, or, or whatever, a, a need, you know, a, a joy. And the other is an organized body that uses that for power and, and corruption, in, in, in many cases, mm. in many cases. And, you know, I, I don't have either, but um, I, I, I suppose I, I think that um, when it affects me, that's when I have a say in it. Mm. And religion affects me. Religion's very real. Spirituality doesn't really affect me. See, I me. find it it's an irony, isn't it, when the people that attack you on Twitter for challenging them about their religious beliefs, they show the total disrespect to you mm. for what is your belief. Your belief is yeah, well, you're they... an atheist and you just don't happen to believe in a, well, in a deity or a god. I can respect that completely yeah. whilst choosing myself to have a different belief. Of course, of course. And, um, uh, uh, you know, I think people do... Uh, well, first of all, we're on to Twitter now, so we're not into rational discussion. And the, one of the best tweets I've ever had is, everyone is entitled to their opinion, so keep quiet about your atheism. 
the beautiful irony in that is wonderful. That is funny. That was Ricky Gervais on Piers Morgan, I think about a year ago or so. And Ricky Gervais nailed it. Uh, at least I, I would have to say that I agree with what he had to say 100%. Um, I don't think anybody's against spirituality as such. It's always the organized religion that gets pe some people um, riled up, especially when it starts to impose its opinion on others. That's where government comes in. Now, regardless of our tradition, as I said before, the, of this, the uh, separation of church and state, the mayor and councillors of the city of Saguenay, Quebec, have taken it upon themselves, in the uh, words of the Supreme Court, quote, to manifest and profess one religion to the exclusion of all others, unquote, by reciting the Lord's Prayer at the opening of every meeting. But it wasn't simply the recitation of the prayer which clinched it for the judges. As Justice Gascon, who wrote the opinion, said, quote, I concede that the state's duty of neutrality does not require it to abstain from celebrating and preserving its religious heritage, but that can't justify the state engaging in a discriminatory practice for religious purposes, which is what happened in the case of the city's prayer. The mayor's public declarations are revealing of the true function of the council's practice, unquote. Now, Earlier on in the uh, tribunal case, it was revealed by the mayor, Jean Tremblay, that, quote, I'm in this battle because I worship Christ. When I go to the hereafter, I'm going to be able to be a little proud. I'll be able to say to him, I fought for you. I even went to trial for you. There's no better argument. It's extraordinary. I'm in this fight because I worship Christ. I want to go to heaven, and it's the most noble fight in my entire life, unquote. So, a little blatantly out there that this is not simply a religion, a prayer for uh, the sake of tradition or heritage. This was a battle for him. It sure was. Yeah, I didn't realize it was that 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 an extreme situation. That's probably what brought it up. I think he's pathologically Christian. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I had to say that because yeah, Piers sure. Morgan's pathologically atheist sure. uh, just sort of riled me. Now, the court went on to say, quote, The state's duty of religious neutrality results from an evolving interpretation of freedom of conscience and religion. The evolution of Canadian society has given rise to a concept of this neutrality according to which the state must not interfere in religion and beliefs. The state must instead remain neutral in this regard, which means that it must neither favor nor hinder any particular belief. And the same holds true for non-belief. The pursuit of the idea of a free and democratic society requires the state to encourage everyone to participate freely in public life, regardless of their beliefs. A neutral public space, free from coercion, pressure, and judgment on the part of public authorities in matters of spirituality is intended to protect everyone's, every person's freedom and dignity. And it helps preserve and promote the multicultural nature of Canadian society. I think uh, just a, an interjection, I think I may mm -hmm. disagree with that particular observation about the multicultural nature of Canadian society. But Depends how you, how you interpret <clears throat> that word, of True course. Mm -hmm. The state's duty to protect every person, to go on to quote, uh, every person's freedom of consciousness and uh, religion means that it may not use its powers in such a way as to promote the, particular, uh, the participation <laughs> participation <laughs> of certain believers or non-believers <laughs> in public life to the detriment of others. If the state adheres to a form of religious expression under the guise of cultural or historical reality or heritage, it breaches its duty of neutrality. He went on to say, the recitation of the prayer at the council's meeting was above all else a use by the council of public powers to manifest and profess one religion to the exclusion of all others. The prayer recited by the municipal council in breach of the state's duty of neutrality resulted in a distinction, exclusion, and preference based on religion, that is, based on Simoneau's sincere atheism, which, in combination with the circumstances in which the prayer was recited, turned the meetings into a preferential space for people with theistic beliefs. The latter could not participate in municipal democracy in an, an environment favorable to the expression of their beliefs. Although non-believers could also participate, the price for doing so was isolation, exclusion, and stigmatization. 
barring the municipal council from reciting the prayer would not amount to giving atheism and agnosticism prevalence over religious beliefs. There's no distinction between unbelief and true neutrality. True neutrality presupposes abstention, but it does not amount to a stand favoring one view over another. Now, I found this uh, last comment, Bob, to be most important. It clarifies that by abstaining from prayer, one does not profess an atheistic belief. It's a neutral position, a position founded in principles and traditions hundreds of years old, as I've mentioned. Now, the Court of Appeal found that, uh, quote, the prayer at issue expressed universal values and could not be uh, identified with any particular religion, unquote. Now, this is the Court of Appeal. And remember, that appeal was thrown out. The Court of Appeal thought that the Lord's Prayer was just so universal. Well, it's just not Catholic. It, it could be identified with no, no one particular religion. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the same devious position held by those religionists, theists, and deists who, in attempts to solidify their position in society, maintain that as long as they keep their prayers vague, vague enough, nobody should be offended except the atheists. And, of course, they don't matter. Or, as in the Ontario Provincial Parliament, they hold a number of different prayers, uh, feigning neutrality, I guess, from uh, any differing prayers and even conflicting religions. <laughs> it's actually quite comical that they would have all these different conflicting religions and prayers out there saying, we're the one religion, God's will be done, and Allah is the only uh, uh, God and Muhammad is prophet. You know, I mean, in, in direct conflict with all these other prayers that go on at the Ontario Provincial Parliament. So um, they do this, of course, pretending that they're being neutral. But the atheist, it, it can't be neutral to the atheist. There's no true neutrality unless you abstain from all prayer. It well, well, an atheist is a non-entity in yeah. that sense. It's, a, it's a non-existent. <laughs> <laughs> You know, sadly, the Ontario Court of Appeal in a decision handed down two years ago that the provincial legislature's standing orders that, quote, speakers shall recite Christian prayers, unquote, cannot be challenged under the charter, under a doctrine of sovereign governments, not being subject themselves to the law. This applies to the federal legislature, too, which, as I mentioned before, also recites a Christian prayer daily. Uh, Now, I got that from the Globe and Mail in 2013, September 13th. Uh, Municipal governments, not being sovereign, of course, are held accountable to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and therefore must no longer open their meetings with prayers. Consider, if you will, how a member of the public might feel attending a meeting of the London City Council. Just before the meeting begins, the mayor and councillors gather and give each other a secret handshake, then recite a prayer to the most holy and glorious Lord God and great architect. Your confusion and isolation would only be exacerbated when, at the close of the meeting, the mayor and councillors, these sons of light, ended the session with a prayer to the supreme grand master, ruler of heaven and earth. Now, some Masonic lodges do just that, or so I'm told. Their private and secret organizations come complete with their own symbols and prayers, symbols which mean nothing to non-Masons, and prayers which are just as unfathomable to the uninitiated you would quite justifiably get the impression that the mayor and councillors of London do not have your best interests at heart in their deliberations. Such a practice should stop immediately, you might say. Well, although no, I'm not comparing the Catholic Church to any Masonic Lodge, although the similarities are there, the Supreme Court of Canada agrees that such blatant preference should stop, and I'm in agreement. Here's another slogan. Here's another slogan you run into all the time. God bless America. Once again, respectfully, I say to myself, what does that mean? God bless America? Is that a request? Is that a demand? Is that a suggestion? Politicians say it at the end of every speech, as if it were some sort of verbal tick that they can't get rid of. God bless you and God bless America. God bless you and God bless America. I guess they figure if they leave it out, someone's going to think they're bad Americans. Let me tell you a little secret about God, folks. God doesn't care. He never cared about this country. He never has, he never will. He doesn't care about this country any more than he cares about Mongolia, Transylvania, Pittsburgh, the Suez Canal, or the North Pole. He simply doesn't care, okay? He doesn't care. Listen, 
Hey, there are 200 countries in the world now. Do these people honestly think that God is sitting around picking out his favorites? Why would he do that? Why would God have a favorite country? And why would it be America out of all the countries? Because we have the most money? Because he likes our national anthem? Maybe it's because he heard we have 18 delicious flavors of classic rice-a-roni. It's delusional thinking, it's delusional thinking, and Americans are not alone with these sort of delusions. Military cemeteries around the world are packed with brainwashed, dead soldiers who are convinced God was on their side. America prays for God to destroy our enemies. Our enemies pray for God to destroy us. Somebody's gonna be disappointed. Could it be everyone? Now, now. One of them will die. One of them will die. Try it and see. If you leave, yeah, he dies. He can do it. He's already killed two of our colleagues. How is that possible? I cut off their heads. But none of this is real. Of course it's real. As real as a nightmare. The two we found dead both suffered from massive heart attacks. Heart attack? Now what might cause a heart attack? Hmm. Unmanageable stress, perhaps? Unmanageable fear? The fear of losing a head, perhaps? How did this happen? The system was designed to be adaptive, to observe and respond to our thoughts and adjust the environment to our wishes. Who wished him up? It happened over months without our even realizing it. All of us had fears about survival, recovery. We never anticipated the computer would manifest those fears into him. Our only hope was that someone like you would come along and find us. It's almost as though he can read our minds. He seems to know what we're thinking. He's generated by the system, and our brains are monitored by the system. So yes, in a manner of speaking, he can. But there is a delay before he becomes aware of what we're thinking. All we have to do now is decide how to negotiate with an emotion, with a manifestation of fear. Fear is the most primitive, the most primordial of biological responses. The ability to recognize danger, to fight it or run away from it, that's what fear gives us. But when fear holds you hostage, how do you make it let go? Maybe we should try to make them laugh. A good joke, just... Uh, seems to make a fear dissolve. Well, it does in me, anyway. <laughs> Poor Neelix wasn't getting a very good reception to his suggestion there. <laughs> that was from an episode of Star Trek Voyager, about which more will be said in our final quarter after we discover how they did, in fact, make fear let go. Today, my theme is what I shall loosely call the fear factor. Is there a fear factor that motivates more of our beliefs and actions than we dare admit to ourselves? What are the effects of this, both personally and in the public realm? And with that broad question in mind, I thought we might take a moment or two to take a brief journey into fear, to examine as best we can in the time span we have to work with, to take a look at how and why various forms of fear manifest themselves. A lot of what brought this to mind was a theme I presented on the show last week. The frustration and growing anger I was hearing on various open line talk shows coming from just one caller after another, coupled with their calls for more of or a different version of the same bad political policy to which they were objecting. And the disconnect was somewhat alarming, Robert. Like, you know, monopolies are bad, but don't sell my monopoly, just fix it. <laughs> Right? They're all saying in some form or another, make it a good monopoly. And they just don't seem to realize that's not possible. And how many times do we find ourselves asking on this show, no less, why rational arguments and objective evidence seem to have so little influence on the political choices and motivations of the majority? Why does Ontario have a majority win government? Clearly, this was an electoral choice driven by the fear factor. 
from the fear of PC leader Tim Hudak's vow to eliminate 100,000 civil service jobs to the fears of high energy costs and increasing job losses, and a promised security through yet another state pension plan, which the liberals, with smiling faces and an air of projected confidence, assured voters were problems that they could fix, and we just went for it. Well, as I listen very carefully to many of the people I hear voicing their concerns on so many of the shows, it struck me that what they're often expressing is not a concern per se, but a fear. A fear of something that might happen or will happen in the future to them personally. When a fear actualizes in the present, because fear is always about the future, when when it actualizes in the present, it either becomes terror or... It dissipates entirely in the sense that it's no longer an anticipation to be feared and often as an acceptance, even in the face of death. Or fear may dissipate because the thing feared never even came to pass. Well, I expected to be terrified once, you know, getting on the zipper Ferris wheel at the fair, but then I tried it and I found out I loved it. <laughs> I reminded of Sunday, sh- Sunday shopping laws and yes. free trade. Remember yes. the fear about those? And oh, when we got them, it dissipated. So that's true. And one thing we never fear is the past. If fear has anything to do with the past, it is only in the recording of the history of the evil that people have been driven to out of their fears. But having said all that, fear is not our enemy. Even when we're talking about fear itself, which is an emotion at at its root. Again, as always, and as with the intellect, what is at issue is whether a person's fear is rational or irrational. Rational fear is controllable and can be overcome. Irrational fear, and I'm not talking about crazy people or people who have mental issues, because that's a separate issue, is uncontrollable because, well, by definition and circumstance, such a person has made a conscious choice to think or act in a demonstrably harmful way, whether to himself or to others. Or in other words, he's made a choice to reject reason and reality. You know, be afraid, be very afraid. What where did that, what, what movie did that come from? I'm not even too, too sure. Um, that uh, <laughs> yeah, it's so popular too. I don't Science know. Science fiction, yeah. Or something, wasn't yeah. It? I'm not sure what it was, but that's an implied message given to us by almost everybody trying to persuade us to buy something or do something or vote for somebody, because fear is a great motivator. Fear has been described as the consequence of ignorance and superstition and contrasted against the freedom from fear that one achieves by the light of reason and knowledge. That's broadly true, but it's by no means an explanation nor even a complete description of the phenomenon of what we call fear. There are certain things that should be feared but are not particularly destructive and evil political ideologies that have inescapable long-term to-be-feared consequences. And in such a circumstance, one might make the opposite argument, that one's lack of fear is the consequence of ignorance or superstition. (laughs) You ever played it that way? I never thought of it that way before. If the child does not know that the pretty colored pills in the medicine container contain poison, there will be no fear whatever in that child while swallowing the very cause of his demise. Or maybe they're just being irrational. You know, you hear people say, I know smoking's bad for me, but I smoke three packs a day. Or maybe, just maybe, it's more like Thomas Sowell suggested in one of our recent audio bites on a past show, that it's all just a matter of trade-offs and values that ultimately determines the choices that people make. Now, I'm not here to analyze any of these particular choices, but I am curious about why people make the bad choices they do, especially when a lack of knowledge or ignorance is not a factor. What motivates all of this? Well, no philosopher that I know of writes more about the emotional side of human beings than someone I've spoken of many times on this show, and that's Scottish philosopher John McMurray. And he writes extensively on this. And and from his book, Freedom in the Modern World, in the final summary, he wrote, and I quote, Now, when people grow afraid, when there is a secret hidden fear at the center of their consciousness, they have lost faith in themselves and they begin to clutch at anything to save them. And they turn always to power, especially to organized power. They want an authority to take the burden of responsibility off their shoulders. They become formalists in religion and in morality. They get excited about money and position because they want to be safe and secure. They want everyone to agree with them because then they feel safe in their beliefs. That is when the false morality of obedience to law becomes rampant. And he continues, what we feel and how we feel is far more important than what we think and how we think. And now he's, he's talking about the hierarchy of, of motivation here, not, not literally. 
Feeling is the stuff of which our consciousness is made, the atmosphere of which all our thinking and all our conduct is bathed. All of the motives which govern and drive our lives are emotional. Love and hate, anger and fear, curiosity and joy are the springs of all that is most noble and most detestable in the history of men and nations. Scientific thought may give us power over the forces of nature, but it is feeling that determines whether we shall use that power for the increase of human happiness or for forging weapons of destruction to tear human happiness into two pieces. Thought may construct the machinery of civilization, but it is feeling that drives the machine. And the more powerful the machine is, the more dangerous it is if the feelings which drive it are at fault. And that's why feeling is more important than thought. End quote. Now, a lot of people these days aren't feeling too great about the way things are going, even when their own fears are contributing to their own fears. And yes, fear does multiply itself. One of the manifestations of a growing fear is a growing popularity of religion, and this speaks very much to the first half of our show today and to why issues of state versus religion will always be with us in some form or another. In that regard, I've quoted parts of the selection before on the show, but under a different context, having been religion itself, not on fear. Again, from John McMurray. And this is interesting, Robert, to speak to your first half of the program. He says, all religion, as we have seen, is concerned to overcome fear. We can distinguish real religion from unreal religion by contrasting their formulae for dealing with the negative motivation. The maxim of illusory religion runs, quote, fear not, trust in God, and he will see that none of the things you fear will happen to you. That of real religion, on the contrary, is fear not, the things that you are afraid of are quite likely to happen to you, but they are nothing to be afraid of. In fact, that's exactly how the, the, the Christian character acted in that Twilight Zone clip that we played earlier in the show. Yes. He fell into the real religion category. He wasn't saying, I'm, not, oh, I'm looking forward to death or anything like that. And Anne continues, McMurray, any society of persons united in a common life has a religious aspect. Atheism, if it is in action is an effort to suppress this aspect. If passive, it is a failure to recognize it. Both active and passive atheism are normally reactions against unreal religion. And even so, they're accidental and unusual. End quote. Which explains why I found myself concluding on a previous show that without believers there would be no atheists. <laughs> it's the point counterpoint. Or as I put it, if there were zero people on the face of the planet who believed in a deity, there still would also be zero atheists, because there would be no countervailing point to argue. Be sure to keep McMurray's contrast in mind, because I'll come back to it again a little later in the show. And then he, here's a fascinating thing, he says, why people believe in an afterlife. And this is John McMurray talking again, quote, The prevalence of the belief in immor immortality throughout history and among people of the most diverse types is in itself no argument for the truth of the belief. For many of our beliefs are the product either of the limitations of our knowledge or of our hopes and fears. The former kind, if they are false, are gradually dissipated by the progress of knowledge. But much deeper than the hope of a possible extension of life beyond the grave lies the universal fear of the actuality of death. The gift of reason brings with it inescapably the knowledge of death. And so this knowledge has to be reckoned with if it is not to paralyze activity and generate an over, overwhelming despair. One means of escaping from fear and its paralyzing effects is to succeed in ignoring or denying its object. And there can be no doubt that to a considerable extent the belief in, in immortality rather, arises in this way that it performs the function of a psychological defense mechanism by denying in idea the fact of death and so enabling men to ignore it in their actual life. I actually said something very similar to that on an earlier show and I had never read this before by <laughs> McMurray. Apparently we're on the same page. I realize this doesn't offer maybe the comfort and the freedom from fear that a lot of people think they're looking for because no amount of psychoanalyzing philosophic discussion or scientific advances will ever eliminate all fear and anxiety in our lives. We have to learn to live with fear. It is the great motivator. Rather than resist fear in a vain attempt to overcome it, we should be using this great motivator to help guide us into rational thinking, feelings, and actions. 
When it comes to things or events that we could fear, the list would be almost infinite. I wish I had more time to examine even a fraction of them. I mean, a fear of heights, a fear of flying, fear of being in closed places, fear of aging, fear of loss, fear of loneliness, illness, death. Fear of inequality, fear of public speaking, for example, a fear of the public, a fear of poverty, and so on and on and on. But when we return from this following journey into fear, I will try to focus on one or two prevalent fears that can get us into so much political and collective trouble. Are you afraid of growing old, Harry? Is that what you fear? Being cared for by nurses? Time for your medicine. You don't like being helpless, do you, Harry? You like to take care of yourself. Yes, I know how you hate to feel like the baby on the crew. <laughs> oh, what's the matter, Harry? Oh, does my costume frighten you, huh? <laughs> It's an illusion. When your only reality is an illusion, then illusion is a reality. Like the man said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Oh, I thought we were going to be friends. Didn't want to do this, Harry. No, I didn't want to bring this up in front of the others, but uh, I know what really scares you. I know when you were nine, your parents took you to that colony. <laughs> you wandered off by yourself where you weren't supposed to be. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. You saw people and things you weren't supposed to see. Sick and dying. Keep repeating. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And how about, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. <laughs> Try clicking your heels together three times. Oh, but your legs are restrained, aren't they? Just like that little girl you saw on the operating table. The doctor called for a scalpel. She looked at you. Her face filled with fear. 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 Do you remember? No! Excuse me. You're not holding that properly. Correct positioning of the index finger is necessary for optimal dexterity. The captain has sent me with an ultimatum. Ultimatum! Ultimatum! She would give me an ultimatum? <laughs> Did Napoleon give an ultimatum after Waterloo? We won! We give the ultimatums around here. The captain is prepared to shut down the system one minute from now, if you don't agree to her terms. And scramble the brains of all my guests, including Harry? I don't think so. 52 seconds. She is willing to risk brain damage to the hostages, but she will end this, and end this now, one way or another. What are her, her terms? 43 seconds. She will allow you to keep one person on the system. The other hostages must be released. One? Never! I won't agree! You have 30 seconds to avoid termination? I need more time. Time to think. Two? Let me keep two. 20 seconds. There is another provision. The one hostage you will be allowed to keep is Captain Janeway herself. Your time is up. Your answer, please? Yes. You're here. You're actually here. I don't believe it. The arrangement was that the others would be released. You show remarkable trust, Captain. How could you be so sure I would keep my word? I've known fear. It's a very healthy thing most of the time. You warn us of danger, remind us of our limits, protect us from carelessness. I've learned to trust fear. 
Finally, someone who appreciates me. Am I blushing? Let them go. Yes, yes, of course. I can't wait to get to know you, to make you a part of me. As I understand it, it takes a few minutes before you become aware of my thoughts. Is that true? An eternity of anticipation. Would you be honest with me? Fear is the most honest of all emotions, Cat. You really want this to end as much as I do, don't you? Now, now, don't even think about leaving. I'm not going to let you go. Not after all this. Mira? Don't we make a beautiful couple, Captain? I'm not Captain Janeway. Could have fooled me. I'm afraid I did. Captain Janeway and her crew modified the pods so that she could be connected to the system without having to enter this environment. The goal was to let you sense her brain activity without putting her in actual jeopardy. You will be able to confirm what I'm telling you as soon as you become aware of her thoughts. You know as well as I do that fear only exists for one purpose. To be conquered. She tricked me. Did she? Or was a part of you actually hoping to be defeated? Isn't that why you allowed Captain Janeway to come here? Because you sensed she had the power to subdue you? No. She lied. It was very un-Starfleet of her. Starfleet captains don't easily succumb to fear. What will become of us? Of me? Like all fear, you eventually vanish. I'm afraid. I know. Dread. And fade to black. A chilling ender to an episode of Star Trek Voyager entitled The Thaw, which is not a title that would give you a clue as to what the episode would be about. Michael McKean as the clown portrayed fear as if fear itself were the devil. Didn't he didn't it come across a bit like that? And as the clown in Voyager said, when your only reality is an illusion, then your illusion is a reality. And the only thing you have to fear is fear itself it becomes a literal truth. I think fear is a lack of control. It can be, but there are, again, rational things to fear. Mm -hmm. And one of the irrational ones, I think, as an example, is fear of climate change, just about as unreal a fear as you could have. In fact, it's a perfect parallel to the unreal religion example that we gave by John McMurray earlier. Now, if I were to replace the word religion with climate change and replace the word God with government, here is exactly what John McMurray would have said. Quote, the maxim of illusory climate change runs, quote, Fear not, trust in government, and it will see that none of the things that you fear will happen to you. That of real climate change, on the contrary, is, Fear not, the things that you are afraid of are quite likely to happen to you, but they are nothing to be afraid of, end quote. <laughs> right? <laughs> it works perfectly. And then he would conclude, both active and passive climate change atheism are normally reactions against unreal climate change theories, and even so, they are accidental and unusual. It works perfectly. It does. It, it works perfectly. And uh, you know, here's another social fear that many people have but are completely aware of, and I've been calling this the fear of democracy and majority rule. This leads to a fear of other collectives who vote in blocks, whether formed around an economic interest like business or labor, or ethnic or cultural or racial collective. The idea that a majority can any way infringe upon the rights of, of a minority is the source of this fear, and that's a legitimate fear. You want to avoid having majorities, quote, rule, and there shouldn't be any rulers. We should have government. Now this one, next one is more of a principle about fear than it is about fear itself, although the fear, it may exist, and that is fear of the future. You know, in politics, this is the name of the game. Politically, people have no interest in the past or what's already happened or what they already know about. And worse, even if the thing they object to had already happened, the idea of reversing it wherever possible is rarely contemplated. The number of bad and unnecessary laws, rules, regulations that were rescinded after being passed would fill a post-it note. 
<laughs> we still have rent control under different rules. We still have the temporary federal income tax that was passed to help us finance the Great War. We still have lower speed limits on our 400 series highways because of an oil and gas shortage in the 70s. Mm. We still have a beer monopoly, even though there's no possible rational reason to have one. And by announcing all of the major fear factors in last week's Ontario budget, well in advance of the budget, the Wynn government pulled off a coup. The news that we'd be getting cap and trade, hydro rates would increase, that parts of Hydro One would be sold, all of that was already old news. And so nobody reacted to the budget. It was beautiful. They pulled it off perfectly. And, um, you know, then there's fear of the self. And uh, it's interesting, John McMurray says, if you want to change the future, again, we have to look to politics and to art. We went there before. And he writes, the great hindrance to art is fear and its outward manifestation, the demand for security. We're afraid of ourselves and so afraid to be ourselves. We're afraid of the spontaneity of others. Therefore, we build up individually and socially a great network of defenses against the desperate spontaneity and creativity of the personal. Primarily, each of us is afraid of himself because of this we're afraid of others, and these secret fears in the masses are the root of the injustice and squalor of civilization. You know, it's a great point, because a fear of self most often manifests itself as an expressed or legislated disdain for greed, selfishness, profit, private production, and a whole host of other symptoms, including envy, and eventually fear of the other. We demand altruism, which becomes nothing more than the greed and selfishness of some being forcibly supported by others, so we always end up back in the same place. And of course, the biggie is, at, I think, the fear of living. This is the bottom line fear on a personal living, and there's a great irony in this when one considers that the fear of death appears to be a greater fear. And the irony only occurred to me as I was preparing the show. You know, fear of living includes fear of success, responsibility, of uh, doing or learning the basic life skills necessary to survive both in nature and in society. But the fear of death is not about being dead per se, because you cannot be dead as an existent. The dead have no ability to sense anything and therefore, you know, they can't act. They have no, no necessity to act. Most people seem to understand this. Still, they do speak of a fear of dying, as we so eloquently heard Bill Shatner express on this uh, show a few weeks ago, uh, following the death of Leonard Nimoy. Shatner did not fear death per se. He spoke very much like Ricky Gervais, as we heard just a few minutes ago. For Shatner, his fear was, quote, losing all of this, referring to all the things that life had to offer. But here's the irony. Many people who are actually afraid of death are so because they believe in an afterlife, which is a non-death in their view of the concept, and are concerned with their future an eternal future, no less, whose fate will depend upon the judgment of a deity. So again, fear is about the future, a life that is eternal. Such people do not fear death, they fear life, even an imaginary one, an afterlife. Even the term afterlife is fairly explicit, it's afterlife, and it's precisely because of this, in our context and theme of fear, that for the person who uses the term afterlife, life has been placed in the past as a determined history that cannot change, that there's no fear in the afterlife because there is no before life or during life or future life to have to contend with. Afterlife is a period we usually refer to as death. Taken literally, it would read death life, or if you would prefer to reverse the terms, the living dead. What a great name for a band or a good horror show. Or a movie. Yeah, which would all be about fear and a lot of really bad cryptic stuff. Any way you look at it, the concept of an afterlife is completely egocentric and comes with it a desire to eat one's cake and have it too. And that's pretty much it. And here's the, the, my concluding line from John McMurray, you know, the bottom, conditions of freedom. He says, here's a paradox of freedom. We can either choose between freedom and security. You know, if we demand security, that's a reflection of our fear, while freedom is a, an expression of our reality. If we aim at security, we aim at the impossible and succeed only in multiplying the occasions of fear and magnifying our need for more security. There is no security for us except in choosing freedom. For our security is our fear, and to choose freedom is to triumph over fear. And of course, uh, as he concludes, he says, the enemy of liberty, the great inhibitor of free action, is fear. Because of our intimate dependence upon our fellows, we fear one another most of all. And the one type of mechanism of self-defense self which we develop to serve our fear is a struggle for power. And this is the origin of all tyranny, for it springs from fear and depends on its success 
on the inculcation of fear. Fear increases insecurity and the need for power in a vicious circle that can only end with destruction, end quote. And this, I fear, is the unfortunate path that the once much freer Western world has embarked upon. And if that doesn't motivate you to act, then consider yourself fearless in the face of your own growing loss of freedoms. My advice? Learn to be afraid, to be very afraid. Arm yourself with knowledge and with reason, and then act. And you can do that by tuning in again next week to, to our radio show where we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right. Be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. If people want to say God bless America, that's their business. I don't care. But here's what I don't understand. If they say God bless America, presumably they believe in God. And if they do, they must have heard God loved everyone. That's what he said. He loved everyone and he loved them equally. So why would these people ask God to do something that went against his own teachings? You know what these God bless America people ought to do? They ought to check with that Jesus fellow they're so crazy about. They're always talking about what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? They don't want to know so they can do it. They just want to know so they can tell other people to do it. Well, I'll tell you what Jesus would have done. I'll tell you what Jesus would have done. He would have got up on the top of the Empire State Building and said, God bless everyone around the world forever and ever till the end of time. That's what Jesus would have done. And that's what these people should do. Or else they should admit that God bless America is really just some sort of an empty slogan with no real meaning except for something vague like, good luck. <laughs> good luck, America. You're on your own. Which is a little bit closer to the truth.